Okay, that's it. It's official. Doors closed. Okay, I'm just going to dig in and get started. We're going to start out with quick introductions. I myself am Kevin Arnold. I'll tell my story at the end of this. We're talking about uh, developer platforms, cool tools for building things. Uh, APIs in general is the is the subject matter. Um, we're going to go through and do quick intros and then dig into some high-level questions about uh, APIs and landscape. We'll want to figure out who you guys are so we can try and direct the conversation. But let's, uh, let's dig into it. So um, start at the far end. Chris, do you want to uh, intro yourself and then tell us a little bit about what APIs mean to your day-to-day work and your business? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm actually going to be the odd man out here. Um, so I, my name is Chris Milios. I work, uh, well, I, um, one of my projects is uh, Make Audio Apps, which uh, is a tool set that lets, you, lets developers very easily make um, audio apps for mobile devices. So the tools that we have can basically let you make an, uh, uh, a music app in like less than 100 lines of code. So, uh, so the, the reason that it's a developer platform um, is, is sort of to, is an enabling thing to sort of let users, um, uh, developers, uh, uh, you know, uh, make something, which uh, is going to be a little different than the rest of the people here. So. All right, go ahead, Simon from Eventbrite. Hi, uh, I'm Simon Willison. I'm the Director of Architecture at Eventbrite. So my team is responsible for our internal sort of service-oriented architecture APIs that we use inside the company, but also our external APIs that we use to allow um, external developers to build things against our data. So Eventbrite is a ticketing company. We help uh, events sell tickets online. And as a result, we've got um, lots of data around an event on who bought tickets and their names and their email addresses and, all of, and, and what events are, are going on for different organizers. So the main, thing that people, the main things that people use our APIs for are synchronizing their attendee lists with their existing mailing list or CRM software and also synchronizing their events calendar or indeed our global calendar of events around different categories into, into other platforms. All right. Julie from Deezer. Uh, yeah, for those of you who don't know Deezer, we the second biggest music streaming service operating from France. Uh, we are available in 180 countries and hopefully soon in the US. Uh, we have about 30 million tracks and 16 million active users, and I'm the platform product manager. So I'm handling the roadmaps for APIs and mobile SDKs. So what we provide is... Um, we aim at making it simple for developers to integrate music in, inside their apps. So we have an app platform within Deezer, but you may as well integrate players within website and so on. So you have very simple plugins enabling you to embed a player within a website, but you can use as well our SDKs to build something custom and much more advanced music experiences. So we provide, of course, the catalog and access to discover freeze, artists, tracks, everything. And you may as well get access to user actions, to get access to recommendations. Uh, we made the choice to open the whole Deezer content to developers, just to enable. Our goal is to facilitate music discovery, so making you able to discover new stuff, because we have such a big catalog that it just would take you centuries to listen to all of it. And um, we work with developers and apps. Uh, first, because the founder of Deezer is a geek, and he gets it, and gets the value of 
working with developers. And second, uh, in a more serious way, um, apps are a way to add context, context to music discovery. So when an app uh, works with creators or when a label builds an app saying why you should listen to a song that has more value than just you searching for a random track or a random title. All right, and then Ron from uh, Sonos. Hi, so I'm uh, Ron Cooper. I'm the senior technical leader at Sonos responsible for music partner experience. Um, so what that means is I own the technology stack from APIs to uh, implementation in our apps and players um, involving how we integrate with streaming music services such as Deezer. Um, our spin on APIs is a bit different because we don't actually create APIs that other people consume. We define an API standard that we uh, expect our prospective partners to implement for us so that we can consume it. Um, and we went down this path really to solve a, a very real business problem, which was, you know, when I started at Sonos about seven years ago, and we started working with these early streaming services such as Rhapsody and Pandora, like the first ones to the game, we realized, hey, Every time we do this, they're all giving us APIs to consume, and we're dedicating engineering team and test time, and it's not a scalable approach. We had a vision of the future that was going to be hundreds of streaming services around the world. We needed a way to achieve scale um, just to make it really easy to bring these services into our system, and we realized the way to do it is to say, okay, here's the spec, right? You guys build an API to our spec, and we'll consume it, and it'll just work. And um, over the years, it has worked uh, to the point today where we're running about 50 different uh, music services worldwide in our, on our platform um, using uh, the Sonus Music API. So. Cool. All right. So uh, a, a bit about me as well, real quick. Um, my name is Kevin Arnold. I'm the founder and CEO of OpenAura, which is a, a new platform, a developer platform that uh, aggregates and uh, aims to syndicate visual content and information data that relates to artist identity. So we're looking to, to, um, to pull together a, a large aggregate base of content from any source, anything that's been created by or about the artist and published in any form, open or closed owned content, uh, and then let an artist and their team curate and publish that back out via APIs uh, as a toolkit for developers to create um, deeper, more immersive uh, user experiences uh, beyond static album covers and bio and photo that you see around uh, identity online. So um, I'm uh, super excited to be here with many of these uh, API experts and, and learn a lot of, of good lessons from them. Um, I think it's important, maybe we can uh, start a little bit by understanding who you guys are. Uh, I imagine that in accordance with this uh, more technical than most panel group here of, of panelists, that uh, the audience is the same as well. So how many developer hands out there in the audience? Okay, and who else is maybe in sort of the, the business of, of API publishing or, or works for companies that runs APIs maybe from a uh, business perspective? And what about artists? It was like four or five. That's pretty cool. Um, anybody else in the in the... Let's say the uh, music uh, selling or distribution side of the business from, from label to uh, distributor on out. 
So, all right, that's a pretty good basis. It's a fairly technical audience, and I think you guys can sort of run crazy and, uh, and, and go for it. So uh, I, w- I want to come back and, and focus a little bit about, uh, you know, again, starting at the high level before we go into some of the other issues. There's a lot to talk about, some of the stuff that's already been touched on, standards and our operability. Uh, you know, we have a couple people that are, are publishers and creators of APIs uh, up here, three of us, I suppose, and two of them are maybe primarily consumers. We want to look at, at both of those things. But I guess from, from I'll just throw this out to anybody who wants to grab it. Like, it, it, There's a lot of different perspectives and, and, I think, ways to view value of APIs. But I sort of want to know from you guys what you think that really sort of the really core value or magic that makes this interesting or important to your businesses is. Um, and just sort of pull on that for a bit. Well, I think there's a reason that, uh, um, that, that you know, there's a reason that we make APIs um, for people to, for other developers to use. So, um, in, in my case, uh, I found it that, uh, so I'd worked at Apple and, and a variety of, uh, worked on GarageBand and, uh, some of the iOS apps at Apple and, uh, and I've gone on to do other sort of mobile client apps. And, uh, one of the things that I saw was that, um, for a certain type of app that I was writing, which were music apps, that, um, that there are certain practices that everybody does. Um, there's uh, certain methods and uh, uh, ways that, uh, um, that you put together an app. And uh, I kept doing the same thing over and over again. So, um, so the reason any of us do a developer platform is to uh, you know, basically to help other people and make their job easier. Um, so, uh, so for me, I'd made a sort of visual way to lay out audio plugins and, uh, allow people to, um, sort of visually connect a bunch of pieces and put together their own apps. Um, so like I said, I'm a little bit different cause I'm a little more client side than, than everybody else. So but you, it's about a, a head start of the ability to build off of all this work that's been done and published out to you, right? Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, what it does have in common with, uh, uh with, Either no matter which side of the um, the internet you're on, is that um, you know you're really able to to leverage other people's work. And uh, there's parts of my app that uh, the whole thing is open source, so there's pieces of it that were written by other people. And uh, and then you just come up with a way to sort of um, allow people to mesh things together and, and make their own uh, creations. And uh, so that is definitely what we have. I think we have in common. Anyway. So Simon and Julia, from your both like a business perspective as well as maybe from a technical perspective, what are your goals? So I can certainly talk to the um, business perspective. So one of the things I love about working for Eventbrite is Eventbrite has a very straightforward business model, which aligns us perfectly with the with the needs of our user base. We take a percentage or a small percentage of ticket sales, so anything we do that helps organizers sell more tickets helps them make more money and helps us make more money as well. Um, but fundamentally then, APIs come down to us wanting to offer the best possible experience for our organizers. We never want an organizer to not choose Eventbrite because there's a feature that they need that we don't offer. But at the same time, we operate across a huge number of different verticals. We had 60,000 music events last year, but we, that's actually one of our smaller categories compared 
compared to things like um, conferences, um, endurance events, trade shows, marathons, and so forth. Um, and we can't build every feature you could want for every one of those verticals. In fact, we don't want to. We want to be the experts at ticketing and registration. So having an API means that we can partner up with other companies that work in those verticals and build the ideal tools and build out all of those different features. And when an event organizer comes to us with a feature request that we don't have, instead of turning them away, we can say, okay, well, we've got a partner that can offer that via our API, or you can build that against our API yourselves. What's an example of a partner... Uh um, so actually, a like good that. partnership we had recently is um, there's uh, an event called Wanderlust, which is a sort of music festival and lifestyle health festival as well. Um, they wanted to do advanced scheduling so their attendees could pick different um, sessions and, so, and build up their own personalized schedule within that event. That's not a feature that Eventbrite has, but one of our partners, Sked.org, um, does build software that does that. And we built an in- so Sked built an integration against our API that pulled through the list of attendees of that conference, set them up with accounts and meant that they could buy a ticket from Eventbrite and then instantly start using this external platform to plan out the rest of their event. So, Julie, from your perspective, you're looking to gain users, right? Or... Yeah, to us, there was even no question of whether we would have an API or not. That was just critical for the business. Uh, like for our strategies to be a, to be available in any device all the time. Like when you have your music collection, you need it all the time on your mobile, on your TV, everywhere. And to work with Samsung, to with Sonos, with uh, all manufacturers, with telcos, we needed an API. There was no way for us to tell them, yeah, just grab the content within directly our servers. There was no way of doing that. We had to secure it to make sure that everyone had the right, the right tools, the right documentation and everything. So, But starting from there, we had this API for partners and for strategic partnerships. And that would make sense also to open it to other developers to see uh, what they would build with that. And that's why we also launched the app platform a bit later on, having an application studio directly with that inside these are apps to to have also startups building cool stuff within Deezer, stuff that we couldn't build ourselves because we run out of time and maybe of expertise on social or other stuff that they could have and build. So you're on one hand building these APIs for your internal use and consumption, right, to drive your products across other platforms, but you're also publishing them externally. I want to dig in a little bit from your perspective and, and yours as well. I don't know what you guys might might write yourselves versus consuming all of the APIs that Sonos aggregates. Um, what sort of informed the strategy of, of what you decide to publish externally versus internally, and what's your sort of philosophy around that as a company? Yeah, uh, at first, we have an internal API. We have the external one, and... It's a lot of work to maintain both. But that would make sense, you know, as a, from a security perspective, not to open directly your internal API, even though you have the tools. So at first we had the two, uh, and even a third mobile API, because the you know, issues on mobile are also specific. Um, but then uh, that's a lot of work. Like at Deezer, we made the choice to give developers everything. Like every time we have a new feature, it's available to developers. For example, we released... Uh, users personal radio that's your radio where for example i have a mix of electro swing metal and everything uh that's tailored based on my taste and my favorite artists and the new releases and we chose to open that in the api even though that's a unique feature on deezer in terms of customization 
we want developers to have access to that and to access those recommendations we make for them to build on top of it instead of making them do all the work again. But then opening that means opening it, having it in the internal API for the website and apps and opening it to external developers. And then we just ended up all the time doing the work twice. So we're like, let's not do that anymore. And now we reached the point of having our apps. For example, really, we have a Deezer for Mac app in beta right now that's using the open API, the external one, because that was just easier and well-structured and it would make sense to use one API for just everyone. So, Ron, from your, I don't know if uh, dog fooding applies to you, right? As far as like uh, using the same thing that you publish externally because you're consuming mostly. What is it? Well, mean it's, it's your a, we have a different angle on it. So, much like, um, you know, sort of in a converse sense to what Julie was talking about with Deezer, you know, so their objective is to get every device playing their music. Our objective is to get our devices playing all the music. Okay, so it's kind of the same problem. There's converse, this yeah. converse. There's a multiplicity of protocols. And, you know, they don't want to build one protocol for every device, and we don't want to have one protocol for every service. So, you know, again, it was, you know, our business objective with, this, with the API was really just to reduce complexity in f both for us and for our partners, right? If there's one protocol that we can define and really refine and document and explain and have more and more partners using it and iterating on it, it just gets better and better understood, and we learn from it, and we keep making it better that way. Um, so we don't really dog food per se because we consume APIs, but what happens is when a company does have kind of internal versus external, what can happen is the user experience can start to diverge when you have um, a company that, let's say, builds a mobile app on top of an internal API, and their external API is different and doesn't keep up. So, like, we as, as a consumer of an external API can get in a situation where for, you know, partner XYZ, the experience on Sonos is different than the experience on partner XYZ's native mobile app, mostly because they haven't given us those capabilities in their APIs. So, like, from our perspective, we really love it when partners eat their own dog food, when they make one API, and that API is used in their own products, in their mobile apps, on all the platforms they support, and then it's the API that we get to consume so that we can actually provide the exact same experience on Sonos. So a Sonos customer is very happy when they go from the mobile app to the Sonos app, and it's all the same. So Simon. I'm going to make an argument in the opposite direction for why your external API shouldn't necessarily match the APIs that you use internally. And that really comes down to preserving the ability to iterate and innovate with things. So the problem you have is that once you publish an external API, the moment a third-party developer has built software against that API, you can't break it. You can add things to it. You can expand APIs by adding new functionality, but you can't change how existing functionality works, and you can't remove functionality um, either. This can cause enormous problems. And what you don't want to be in is in a situation where your own internal innovation and the rate at which you produce new features is limited by these par external partners who are building things. And you, you know, if, you, if you're in a position where you can't launch a feature for six months because you have to get all of your external partners to change their way they, you, the, the way they're consuming an API you want to change, that can completely cripple you. So the approach we're taking at Eventbrite is that we have internal APIs. We have a service-oriented architecture layer inside the company. And we can change that pretty easily because we control both the clients and the servers. We can change the server. We can make sure that we deploy a change to our internal clients that are using that at the same time. Then we have an 
external API, which is actually a very thin proxy layer um, over that internal API, which at the moment is mostly passing our internal APIs through unchanged. But in the future, if we need to change our internal representations, we can then use that proxy layer to fix it, to, to ensure that the external developers are still seeing the same thing. So we preserve the ability to uh, innovate internally um, innovate and iterate while also being able to provide a decent contract to our third-party developers that we're not going to break things that they rely on. So from a consumer standpoint, Chris or Ron, do you guys find that promise is uh, delivered on across the landscape as a developer? I, you know, I wouldn't speak to, to, um, um, uh, to Simon's company, uh, uh, Eventbrite, but uh, someone like Facebook has this problem, and I've certainly implemented a couple of Facebook uh, <laughs> Um, integrations into mobile apps before and, uh, you know, the changing landscape, uh, the way that it can change and break you, you know, it's something you have to, uh, I think someone here said something, once you put a Facebook feature in, you're, you'll be working on it, you know, having to change it every two weeks when they change. Um, so um, definitely if you, any way that people can make stability in their APIs from the client standpoint, you know, would be great. But I think it's impossible um, over the long term, uh, and this you know means years. Uh, I think you can define a good API, but but things change in the in the world, and uh, um, I'm, I, a lot of a lot of companies put versioning in, um, mm -hmm. so you pass along a version number, and you hope that it stays working. Facebook's actually a really interesting example for that because Facebook launched their Graph API four years ago, and they announced at the Facebook F8 conference a few weeks ago that they were finally introducing versioning. They'd gone without it for four years, but it got to the point where developers were complaining so much that they'd build something and six months later it would break, that now Facebook have a guaranteed promise that if you build something against their current version of their API, it will work for, tw for two years, um, before, and that they promise not to break um, compatibility for two years, um, which again is direct, based, based entirely on the, these kinds of problems. So is this so, evolving, or are there standard sort of best practices with regard to versioning and, and you know, release management? This is an online, ongoing debate in the API community. The, um, a lot of people a few years ago were saying, don't go with versioning, have one represent, canonical representation for everything and just add new features. And I think sort of experience has shown that that works up to a point. It works in the short to medium term. But in the long term, which is the point where Facebook have got to now with their graph API, you just can't keep on keeping those promises without upsetting people with, at, at all of the things that you break. But well, I think it depends also of what, which data you expose. Like, for example, at Deezer, we expose the 30 million tracks catalog. There's no, you know, it's not going to change like this. Like, a track is still going to be a track, an album is going to be an album, and the playlist won't change either. So I think it depends a lot on the data. Well, we, uh, we don't version, and we probably can't because... Uh, our our firmware is not a, we don't force our customers to upgrade firmware in their Sonos system. So we have customers running software that's five years old, and the the API is five six years old. So there are services out there running, you know, um, uh, well the radio on Sonos is using really ver zero point five of the Sonos API, and it probably will be for the foreseeable future because we have customers out there that are running firmware that's that that is that old. So. Our approach is things have to be additive. You know, we, we can't just break the API in an incompatible way. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're all in, right, with what we've got. We've got to just keep, keep moving it forward. Um, yeah, so. And, and, sorry. Yeah, no, that's, 
interesting. I think the use cases are are very different that sort of uh, breed these different behaviors across that. So I'm, I want to go back to some of the uh, another point you made earlier, maybe, which is um, around your particular challenge, looking at at all of these APIs that are integrated and talk about the concepts of standards, either in um, just object architecture or yeah. perhaps even you know data data exchange formats, et cetera, and. Yeah, what where they are today, what they mean to you, where you want them to be. Sure. Yeah, this was uh, we had a good argument about this in the green room. So the um, we're at. Um, so I, I'm in a unique position because I get to see basically all the APIs that are out there from all the music services and uh, attempt to try to rationalize them under one umbrella. And it amazes me that for something as seemingly simple as okay, describe a track. Tell me what the metadata is to describe a track. There's no standards. I'm not even asking about like a standard API or standard identifiers, although those would be awesome too, but just a standard schema that says what is the name of the element that provides the name of the track? Is it title? Is it song? <laughs> right? Uh, how do you specify the duration of a track? Is it like minutes colon seconds or is it an integer of seconds? Just really, really basic, like, what is the name of the thing and what is the data type for just the fundament fundamental elements of entities, objects in the music space. People have been working on this problem, you know, building music services and representing music metadata for how many years, and yet there is not one standard generally accepted schema. There's no style guide or... Well, it's, like it's, it's really a, a schema. It's like... What about titles or something? Does it... Approached or try to address the. There job? are approaches, yeah, but they're not generally wi wi widely adopted. So if I go to the Deezer API and I say, you know, Deezer slash track slash blah blah blah, I get this one JSON blob back. If I do the same thing to Beats, I get a different JSON blob back, and they're so similar, but they're not the same. So that means our code has to sort of map it. What about normalization layers in between there? Have you? thought about or seen anything that tries to solve that problem? Uh, Not only in, I mean, I think music data space is one sort of namespace to think about, but in... in well, our, for our system, our API acts as a normalizing layer because it, our system expects the metadata to be just so per the XML schema that's in our API. So anything, you know, that sits between our API and the backend, you know, music service API has to normalize it to our schema. Right. So I'm interested in the similar problems and, you know, I think maybe Chris, in your standpoint, from either audio hardware tools, et cetera, so creation tools, and maybe from an events perspective as well, from Simon, too. So go ahead, Chris. I, I want what, what uh, Ron wants, too. But for sure, I'd, I'd love it if we could always agree on the size of, you know, of, of the names of things. And, um, but when you're on the client side sort of implementing them, it's amazing how, um, how subjective something like description is, whether it's, you know, a thousand characters or ten or, you know, um, uh, hundred characters, right? Uh, you know, when you're, when you're actually having to display the things on the client, um, the differences between, I mean, no one can agree on what genres are, um, and they probably shouldn't, right? A lot of these things are subjective, and, um, you know, a lot of the times if you have a genre, it's almost an insult to the artist, uh, and I think uh, uh, so uh, but yeah it's also amazing like something that you think is you know 
concrete like um, a person's name in uh, um, something isn't you know two words it can be something you know gigantic and uh, full of strange characters and and stuff like that so this is the stuff that we do deal with i i i certainly um, agree with ron it'd be nice to mm-hmm. to find the right compromise same problem in events simon um, or do you so uh, events have uh, so i'm i'm something of a sort of metadata standard skeptic um i they, they sound fan- it sounds fantastic in theory, and I think maybe, maybe musics and tracks you might just about be able to get there, although I bet there's like traditional Tibetan music that doesn't divide into like tracks in the same way that a, a pop album would. Um, but, so, the, the, but I've seen a lot of different attempts at standardizing um, metadata, and some of them get really funny. Um, there's one called schema.org, which is Google-sponsored. I'm looking at their website here. They have a diet, where a diet is a subclass of lifestyle modification, which is a subclass of medical therapy, which is a medical entity, which is a thing. And a diet can have endorsers, which are organizations that have endorsed this diet plan. And it's, you just look at it, and every single one of these things has hundreds of properties, yeah, point and made, straight yeah. away, you can spot flaws in them like the gen they have a gender property on a person which i think do they define that as male versus female because if they do they've screwed that one up already so you know there's there's so there are there's it's very 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 difficult to get this stuff right um there's a couple of hands have gone up yeah okay let's hear some opinions sure Okay, and this uh, and it's it's a multiple year effort, right? I mean, Schema.org's been around for a bunch of years already, and maybe we'll get to something in the future for this kind of thing. Events are actually interesting because um, they're something which are quite well represented by core metadata. If you just knock an event down to it has a name, it has a start date, it has an end date, it has a location, which if you ignore online events and events in Second Life and so on, it can more or less, more or less get there. Um, and so actually, uh, if you use uh, microformats or the schema.org microdata in just web pages about events, you'll get interesting effects like Google will pull out those events and show them in a little calendar listing and search results and so on. So, so you can certainly get, get some way towards this, but I remain skeptical of the sort of one true metadata standard to rule them all. Well, so is there not some in-between solution with extensibility, right? I mean, I think that certainly that problem to some degree has been thought about and tried to be solved. Is there some balance in between community or, or you know, defined standards and extensibility, user-defined layers? I think we just end up with a best practice of something, right? Yeah. Or we end up with supporting whatever crap and just yeah. like just living with it. Really. As a developer, I've written so many things where you find data from A, B, and C, which is almost the same, and then you write a little bit of code to transform it into your core representation, and it's irritating, but it's not quite as irritating as, as wading through 10 years' worth of standardization um, processes. It, for, for, for my purposes, at least. Yeah, so it's the standardization it. process that sounds like the fun part you're trying to avoid. <laughs> then. Yeah, so. Indeed, we see a lot of developers using several APIs. Like in the music space right now, there are at least 50. I don't know. I don't even know the number. And we see a lot of people using Deezer for streaming and maybe Grace Note for fingerprinting and, and other APIs. And that's why um, at least hopefully we have standards for track for with ISRCs, and we see more and more databases um, being able to export uh, other uh, services IDs. Like, for example, we announced a partnership with Grace not enabling um, 
to get user IDs from their database. And we see a lot of that and more and more for lots I mean, of services. And that, I think that's a very quick way of handling the problem right now. ID sharing is fantastic. Any service that maps the ID of this album in this thing is this thing over here. They're amazing. And I, I, I've had a lot of luck in the past with Freebase as, one of, as, as a service that, that's been able to do that quite well. So do you want to add a comment real quick? Uh, hi, I'm Tony Brook. Uh, I sit, uh, I'm a member of DDEX. And um, just a couple of weeks ago, um, you know, we formed a working group uh, that is now developing a standard. Um, and we welcome input. If you're an implementer of DDEX, which I imagine many are, um, check in uh, with the Studio Data Working Group. We've built a core Studio set. Studio Data. So this is about um, credits? Yes. Liner notes? Uh, and building, building upon the DDEX dictionary of terms for... The DDEX dictionary is pretty fleshed out as far as naming items uh, like title and uh, track and year and stuff like that. Um, but we're actually forming, uh, we've already formed a working group and we've come up with a baseline schema for, uh, for describing tracks uh, down to ID level. And then we have a longer list of wish list items, which we could get to, but we're starting with a starting square. Um, so if you're a member of DDEX, definitely we need input there. Uh, if you're an implementer of DDEX, check out what's up there already. And as of just a couple of weeks ago, we have made some steps forward. Of course, because it's a uh, collaborative effort of all parties, so many parties, it is slow going. Yep. Uh, it's uh, definitely acknowledged. Yeah, I think most people, hopefully, the room is full of DDEX aficionados. Mm-hmm. Um, DDEX.org, right? DDEX.org. And uh, the, if you're, we're hoping to piggyback, I'm, I'm the metadata champion for credits. Uh, and we're hoping to piggyback on the success of transactional information for sales to use that momentum to move forward the issues that we're just speaking about. Cool. Great. So I'm going to come back and open up for questions in a few minutes and more broadly. I want to maybe talk and focus back on, on a little bit of, um, of best practice questions uh, with regard to a few different things. One is, I think, is both as a sort of publisher and consumer um, around... Um, license policies, um, things like rate limits, and, uh, and these other, you know, sort of core, core levers, like sort of when you, when you go to be a customer first, let's think about it from that perspective, like what, what are going to be, what, what makes good, good API experience versus bad, right? I think you, the comment was made, if you can't come in and and figure out a way to build something within 10 minutes, you're going to lose interest, right? So what do you look for there? So as somebody who builds stuff on APIs, um, I mean, that, that's something I was saying in the green room earlier. I like to get up and running really quickly because just looking at the documentation of an API is very rarely enough for you to really understand if it's going to be useful or not. You want to get real data flowing out of it as quickly as possible. So I'm a huge fan of so JSON-based APIs that are sort of restful. So you've got a URL and you can look at it in your browser and you can see what you're going to get back. Um, I think API explorers and tools along those lines are incredibly important. One of the big things we've done with the new Eventbrite API is we have a really nice API explorer that gives full syntax highlighting, lets you try out any of our API methods, adds a, um, it adds a sort of HTML form to the API response. So rather than hacking around in the URL, you can instantly see what the available arguments are. You can post things to, to experiment with those sides of the API as well. I think that's something which... Um, 
it pays if that that's something you get a lot of return on investment for it doesn't take a great deal of time to build a decent api explorer but doing it makes it much much easier for people to an- analyze your api get started with it and if you've got a if your api is designed in the right way it can be mostly self documenting so you can have people using the api explorer to figure out what data is available and what kind of actions they can perform yeah and there's platforms or packages like Swagger and stuff that uh, power that, correct? So uh... Uh, We're using, um, so Eventbrite is mostly built on top of Django. We're using a package called the Django REST framework, which ships with support for an API explorer out of the box. So we're running a, a modified version built on top of that. So what about other issues around, you know, um, well, licensing is, you know, from a expectation standpoint as a developer or around caching policy, rate limits, any other thoughts or things that you find as blockers? Julie mentioned before that mobile is a is a special thing that the the um, when you want to talk to a, a, a mobile um, uh, when you want to talk to an API like Deezer's API um, from a client point of view we might want a more monolithic call something that gives us a lot of data so that you don't have the um, the latency of making multiple calls and uh, um, you know you want things to be a little more reliable on these guys uh, because they have such bad connections. Um, so that's my from the client side. That's what we like. Should we talk about response formats at all? Or well, um, I, <laughs> I don't know if we want to open that. One thing that just occurred to me actually, because in the last year with various partnerships we've worked with, this has come up a couple of times. APIs that assume that your client is running in a web browser that that like basically breaks us, and, and uh, in particular. Um, Pagination, it's one of these things. It's like a, such a little minute detail, but it's such a pain in the ass when you can't do it. Um, pagination schemes where the API gives you a list of results and then a link to give you the next page, that's goofy because that assumes you're running in a web browser. If you like, have a device, you're not clicking a link to go to the next page. So you know, just awareness that um, you know, there's the Internet of Things out there and APIs are being consumed by things that aren't web browsers, and you should design for that. Um, so is that sort of extracted just navigating large data sets in general, or yeah, just things that you want to see from that standpoint? Yeah, so. think, of, think about your data sets being navigated by essentially headless clients or devices <laughs> or you know, a thermostat or a, a speaker, right? I mean, that's what's going on today in the world. Um, another thing is caching, um, you know, just using good the web standards for cache control so that clients can, you know, be efficient about uh, network traffic. Okay. No comments on REST versus SOAP? And... Yeah. We, uh... <laughs> I remember saying earlier that when I see SOAP, I just run away. <laughs> Developers now are so used to consuming APIs, and we all, I mean, there's still the standard of REST and JSON and and having this case, and when you see something old like SOAP and XML, you're just like, okay, let's see somewhere else. Yeah, and I think um, I'll just, I, you can Google and read all about the religious battles about REST versus SOAP. Um, in my opinion, it's just about putting bytes on a wire, and if you can't write code to serialize and deserialize XML from a HTTP POST command, get over it. It's not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, you're going to have a last word here, opportunity. So. On REST versus SOAP, um, <laughs> I think that, that, that says a lot of it. No, I'm, I'm on Team REST, woo. Um, uh, I, I, just, I like being able to, to, to explore APIs in a browser, basically. And 
I also like not having to think too hard about if I want to put things in XML attributes or XML elements or or XML namespaces or XML crazy um, C data chunks and so on. Yes, yeah, so, so don't think about it. That's that's my point. It's like people get so wrapped up about that, and it's really just. Ser- and we had this argument actually last week in the office. Like we were doing this new because because we use UPnP, our our stack and our all devices is is XML, and we don't want to build two parsers, two serializers. So. This big argument came up. Oh, I'm doing this new data object in XML. I want to do the schema. Should I make this thing an attribute or an element? And these guys are all getting into these semantic arguments. And it's like, you know what? Does the code even care? The code is just putting it in XML to put it on the wire and get it off the other side. We don't do any interpretation of data types. It's nothing, anything very deep. It's just serialization. So like, if you decide not to worry about that, it's actually not so scary. When you're making an app... You'll do what you have to, to to get the functionality, or depending, you know how much pain it is. You sort of measure how much pain it is to to, to deal with these protocols versus what you get from it. So, so, but usually you'll do what you have to do, XML, or you know if you don't like XML or SOAP, you know all these things. <laughs> <laughs> cool. All right. So, should we open it up to questions? Uh, anybody want to drive a topic? No. Okay, well, let's come back to... Uh, I'll ask more questions then. And um, oh, 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 there we go, right. finally, perking up. There's a mic back there. I'll let you choose. How long did it take you to implement the cross-service search at Sonos? Oh. Um, not very long, because we have one API to talk to all the services. So all we had to do was run search across the same API on multiple threads, and there you have it. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, in a weekend it's done. Obviously, there's a lot of um, – the, most of the complexity in implementing that was really defining the user experience. The, the API part was trivial. Um, the hard part is how do you collate the results? What's the right order to present them in? How do you deal with users who really just want to search within a particular service and not across all services? Um, We had to go through an exercise of rationalizing the search categories because one service calls a song song and another one calls it track, and we wanted those results to appear in the same list. So very little of it had to do with the API. A lot of it just had to do with, you know, sort of harmonizing the user experience. One up here. So for anyone who's done a large-scale server-server API integration, have there been any uh, learnings or mistakes that have been made, and could you share those? So did you say large-scale server-to-server integration? Sure. Um, I mean, I can talk to that a little bit. So one of our big use cases, a lot of our use cases at Eventbrite are server-to-server people synchronizing either like crawling through our event listings and pulling them into another system or um, constantly polling for updates to attendee lists and so on. And um, that's a very interesting use case in itself. So polling for updates is can be inc- catastrophically expensive in enormous, enormous amounts of traffic. That's somewhere, somewhere where having good caching strategies becomes very valuable. Um, having a... Um, give me everything that has happened since point X, where point X can be a timestamp, but it's actually almost better to have it as an arbitrary integer ID 
sort of um, symbol that somebody can pass through. So at least when they're polling, if you make sure that's against a, a good database index, it's not causing too much traffic. Uh, one of the things we're looking at at the moment is webhooks as an alternative to polling. So this is when, rather than have, telling third parties they just have to hit you every five minutes and see if there's something new, you let them give you a URL, and then when something happens, so when somebody buys a ticket to an event, for example, you will, ping, you will push data to that URL telling that third party something's happened. This completely eliminates polling um, at the expense of quite a lot more complexity on your side as the implementer, as the, as the service provider. But if, that's, if that um, effort means that you're not being polled every, polled by thousands of people once a minute, that, that can be worthwhile. Or I get, uh, yeah, I had one uh, actually with uh, Deezer, in fact. Um, so uh, the, the Deezer um, service on Sonos is a server-to-server. So we actually have implemented the Sonos API on Amazon EC2, and our uh, web service implementation talks on the back end to the Deezer API. And we had a very funny problem um, late in beta. It was discovered that um, you know users in France were complaining that they were getting um, a lot of Celtic music in the recommended um, music. Because the IP of Amazon European servers is Ireland, and it was doing you know IP filtering and determining content, so that was kind of fun. Referring IP is important. Right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I guess I guess a follow up question. I'm just going to hold the mic. Sorry. Uh, any API abuse? Oh, definitely. I mean, this is why API keys exist, as it lets you identify when people are abusing your API. Um, we do. We have rate limiting at Eventbrite. I'm pretty sure. Everyone here has worked with, with rate-limited APIs before. Um, rate-limiting is not a particularly difficult thing to implement. I think our implementation is built off of a memcached counter. Um, you could rate-limit based on IP address, rate-limit based on the API key itself. And um, that, can, that can go a long way to helping out on these things. But really, the, the important thing is to have a really good understanding of how people are using your API. So obviously, we log everything. Um, but one of the things we've started doing recently is feeding those logs into a tool called Splunk, which is a very, very powerful sort of real-time um, analysis tool for looking at log-style data and figuring out what's Splunk happened rocks. the past minute, the past hour, the past day, who, what, what were they doing, which API, um, which API keys, were, where were they coming from. Um, that's been really useful for, for spotting what people are doing. There's a, Splunk is hideously expensive. There is an open-source alternative called Logstash, um, which does more or less the same kind of thing, but you don't, um, it's more work to set up, but you don't have to pay the license fee. We use Logstash. On that note, any other tools or platform products that you guys use and consider valuable with regard to making the API run successfully? Um, so as I mentioned earlier, we, um, Eventbrite uses Django. The Django REST framework is a very nice open source framework for building APIs, which helps build out the authentication things. It, gives, it, it handles the API explorer side of things. That's been really useful, um, certainly for us. Anyone else have uh, tools and awesome. tips around there? So. We use Splunk. It's great. Any thoughts on, I'm interested in your guys' perspectives on um, API infrastructure platforms, um, uh, Mashery and such, and, uh, and other guys will provide services around key management, et cetera? Yeah, so there are a bunch of companies out there that will manage the API keys for you and so forth. I'm, I don't know. I think it, they, they make sense for when you're just getting started out and you've got the choice between spending a few weeks engineering out all of your API key, key management or just paying another company to do it. But they do add latency as well. They, 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 they work by proxying all of your requests through, through them, um, which is something you have to consider too. I think for larger scale APIs, it makes sense to roll that kind of stuff yourself. 
any other thoughts about tools helping you guys get stuff done faster, et cetera? So. Uh, we, yeah, you have lots of tools like APG, Mashery, and everyone. Um, but at the same, I do agree with Simon that on a certain scale, uh, that's better to handle things instantly and not to depend on another extra service. But depends on how important is your API. For example, for us, it's so strategic for partnerships that we need to really control it. But if that's just a, an extra service that you're opening, but that's not the core of your service, that totally makes sense. Cool. Questions? Anybody else? There's one behind the column after that, too. Thanks. Uh, I'd just like to know, um, do you promote your API within the developer community, and uh, what, what have you found as effective strategies for that? Yeah, how do you market? Uh, I'll go first quick. Uh, we... Our marketing has been sort of grassroots. We've done some music hack days. We um, we sponsored one a couple of years ago, and we've like, participated. Um, uh, but that's pretty much it. I mean, companies that want to work with us tend to find it. I mean, you can you know they find it from our website, and they they tend to discover it. Um, that's that's the extent of what we do. Yeah, and marketing to developers is not about you know being. <laughs> making advertising or, or going to events. It's more a matter of having the right documentation, uh, go where they go, uh, having the right samples on GitHub, being there, answering on questions on Stack Overflow, and provide the best possible service in the minimum lines of code that you, so that you offset, offset complexity. For example, um, for us, as a music streaming service, uh, as a developer, you don't have the hassle of handling music rights management and everything. You can just stream music directly in your website in a few lines of code. And I think that's what makes developer come to us. And having the right doc and explain and make things easy. And, you know, not having them see soap on your website. That's, that's what matters, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> So, so this is my big problem right now. So I've started a project and I need to, to get, uh, you know, to get people to adopt it. So when you make a developer platform, you know, you do what, what Julie said, you have to have, uh, you have to give them a reason to come to you. Um, but uh, um, so hopefully it's, it's ways that they can uh, leverage the work you've done to help them. Um, and, uh, you know, you're giving them something that's of value. So, um, so hey, so you should go see makeaudioapps.com and see what, what uh, I'm doing if you're a developer. And um, it's, it is coming here and talking about it and, uh, and being accessible on GitHub and, um, you know, trying to just get the word out so people know you're around. Yeah, I mean, there's like certainly GitHub, right? Programmable web is a good resource. Any other things along those lines that you guys turn to or...? Um, blogs, you know. That's I mean, to be honest, we have it sort of easy at Eventbrite in that um, we don't we don't have to go out and sort of encourage people to use our API because that that you know people come to us because they want access to our user base. You know, we've got all of these event organizers running events, and if you're building software for um, if you're building software that helps out event organizers, it's kind of a no-brainer to do an event-wide integration so that you've got access to to that that enormous market of people. Maybe Stack Overflow would be another yes. thing is to to be able to sort of be a resource for people. Um, yeah, it's might, became might. become pretty standard in helping developers. Yeah. Cool. There's another one back there somewhere, I think. Just wanted to quickly say Splunk has a free version called Splunk Storm. 
um, gives you up to 20 gigabytes. You can you can you know do pretty much everything you can do on the um, enterprise version except uh, alerts and I think monitoring. Was there somebody else over there? All right, right here. How about uh, persistent identifiers? What's your favorites? Uh-huh. Do you mean um, sort of shared metadata identifiers? Um, I don't do much stuff with music myself, but I've always respected music brains IDs as something that's, that's generally useful there. Like I said earlier, I've built projects against Freebase in the past. I've not checked in with them in a couple of years, but I've been a huge fan. Fantastic. One of the things Freebase does is it, do, it unifies IDs from different uh, places, which, again, is really useful. What about, is there any sort of standards in event space for venues or you know, artists? Like, what are your other main uh, entities there? So venues, Foursquare have a venues API, which was really exciting. You know, they, they said, we've got all of these venues, we have a very open license, but they have terms in their licensing that says that if you're using Foursquare as a source of venues, you're not allowed to combine it with other sources of venues, which suddenly makes them a lot less exciting. So no, in the, in the ter- terms of venues, that's something I'm, I'm still actively interested in finding. And so what about around music? I think standard-wise ISRC is probably the, uh, the most common. Do you guys feel like it's valuable, or does it succeed or fail in its objectives from that standpoint? Well, from our perspective, it doesn't really succeed because, again, every service has their own ID space. And there's no, you know, when they return their IDs, you know, maybe they'll return an ISRC or maybe they'll return a Music Brains ID alongside it, but, um, you know, we were really eagerly hoping for the success of, you know, Rosetta Stone from Echo Nest, because they were trying to tie it all together, which would be really cool for us. I think maybe the future of that is maybe a little uncertain, um, and, you know, really looking for, for some sort of uh, answer to that problem, because it's, for us, it's kind of a big deal, knowing that, you know, we have users using all these services that want to be able to share with each other, for example. Nobody's going to stand up and comment on the, the future of Rosetta Stone today. But, okay. What about uh, Isnees? Anybody ever heard of it? Uh, I'm sure Rob's got an opinion. I was going to go back and ask you what your thoughts about that versus, uh, or I guess how it plays into Music Brains IDs, right? So there's a, another international standard name identifier, another standard that is... Uh, uh, being promoted right now, um, meant to identify uniquely an individual person uh, or, an, or an organization, so meaning a band, perhaps. Right, so, uh, yeah, I don't know if you guys have come across it yet, you see value there. I want to hear Rob's thoughts, too. So, uh, ISNI, ISNI? Uh, we have ISNI support in Music Brains, and uh, we're actually working with ISNI to see if we can uh, tie Music Brains and ISNI together and uh, to do some automatic adding that when Music Brains has uh, a new artist added and uh, a couple of other links get added to it, so a little bit more supporting information, that will automatically push an ISNI uh, to ISNI and vice versa, bring uh, um, sort of a, a dual mapping between the two systems. And uh, right now, Music Brains is still sort of suffering from this. The music industry doesn't really recognize us. The tech industry loves us, which is really great. So there's a lot of people talking about Music Brains IDs. 
Um, so one of the thoughts with ISNI is that maybe if the music industry uses ISNI to identify artists, then they can jump to music brands and use music brands' relationships to find interesting things that they're looking for, and then they can just use the mapping to get back out of the uh, music brand space back into ISNI space. So um, it's a roundabout way of doing it, but uh, we're certainly working on, on trying to make this metadata identification problem Rosetta Stone. We're really trying to be the Rosetta Stone. So anybody, any labels that want to work with us, we very much would like to start a conversation with you. And uh, we're definitely starting conversations with Spotify and uh, Deezer and Rhapsody to try and tie all these pieces together so that uh, everyone could speak the same language. Cool. What about SDKs? Do you guys uh, provide client libraries and what, what uh, languages? So this, that's a really interesting question. So um, we provided client libraries for the previous version of the Eventbrite API. Um, we are working on client libraries for the, um, for the latest version. But one of the problems with client libraries is that, say you release a client library for your API in Python and Ruby and Perl and Java and so forth, does that now mean that every time you add a new feature to the API, you have to go and update the API libraries in all of those different languages? I'm very interested in self-describing APIs, so APIs where if you add a new feature to the API, the client libraries just magically pick those up. That's quite easy to do in dynamic programming languages such as Python and Ruby, but it's a lot harder to do in languages like Java or C Sharp, where the expectation is that you will have a class structure that you ship with your with your client library. So I'm still trying to figure out the, the best way of bringing those worlds together. Uh, what we've done at Deezer is that um, we kind of separated the features we provide in the SDKs. Like um, in the SDKs, we have three things: we have auth, login, uh, we have players, and we have API calls. And anything regarding API calls is just a method called dz.api engine. You just make your API call and get the results. So that when we ship new features or add some metadata in the REST API, we don't have to change everything. And we focus on providing the, the only thing that we can, we cannot do that for players, but the player is just using the native players. We have SDKs for JavaScript, iOS, and Android. And we just provide um, the players and interaction with the native players of these platforms. But anything else is just called the API and that's it. And I, I think that's a convenient way of solving stuff. And we have this we use we do that for every SDK. But then that's right, that's a matter of how which platform do you support? And we made the choice to support the biggest web uh, iOS, Android, but for sure we, we have always thousands of questions or when you ha when are you shipping a C library, when do you ship a Windows Phone library and we would love to, it's just a matter of time. So we, uh, because we're server side, our, our SDKs are actually uh, sample server implementations. So we have uh, Java, PHP, and C Sharp and um, when we change the API, we are internally committed. Like everything gets updated, and it's a lot of work. But I mean, it's what it's what you do when you you know decide to make APIs. You have to maintain them. It's part of the, the job. Uh, on the client side, from you know having an SDK for for somebody's uh, if you have like an Objective C, um, you know if you have a framework or something that uh, um, that you can call. There's a good and bad to it. The the good is sometimes it handles the versioning for you, right? The people will uh, like if you work with Facebook, it's a lot easier to do that through their 
you know, iOS SDK than it is to, um, they'll often wrap some of the changes that will happen. Um, they'll update that to uh, reflect the network calls that you need to make. Um, so sometimes it, it can be a big benefit, um, but sometimes it's, you know, better just to call the, get the JSON back and parse it yourself and put it into objects. In- cool. When I'm working as a developer myself, I actually very rarely use the official client SDK because if I'm working with an HTTP and JSON API, it's normally just as fast for me to knock out my own very thin Python wrapper. Um, but that's a personal taste thing. Uh, I totally understand the, the desire of many developers to work with more fully featured SDKs. Hi, I want to skip back uh, like one question. Um, ISRCs. There apparently is no like canonical database of ISRCs. Is that correct? And can we get one somehow? <laughs> Rob, can we get one? The IFPI, the ISRC people are actively working on that. Uh, there's an awful lot of politics around that. Um, the, they've attempted it a couple times. It's gotten stalled. But uh, as of a couple weeks ago, supposedly, it's moving again. So we're collecting as many ISRCs as we can. But again, this is uh, very much the, the problem with us connecting with the labels. If yep. we had more connections to the labels, this would be easier. So uh, I was going to ask one sort of wrapping thing, and you sort of spoke to it, which is like, are there other things that you guys think are missing uh, and this is last question, last thoughts. But and so let's try and wrap it up quick so they can close this room down. But uh, from toolkit, and let's think about primarily digital music space and perhaps event space. But you know, ISRC seems like one. Anything else that you guys, from an API perspective, are like, if there was only this thing, it would make our lives much easier in whatever way. It's awesome. Problems all solved already. <laughs> universal, universal IDs, basically. Universal IDs. And a standard metadata schema. Yeah. Chris, you had a... No, not really. You know, it's amazing what we can do with all of these APIs, right? And, and the, the, whether, the, wherever they exist. And, and there's so many resources for developers now that, you know, it's, it's almost confusing. There's almost too much to, to, yeah. to keep up with. So there's a lot of goodness out there for sure. So. Cool. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Great job. Thank you very much. Cheers.